Psalm 57. I wasn't able to finish last week, so I thought I'll finish it up this week. So you know, no loose ends or cliffhangers here. <laughs> Let me start by reading the entire chapter again. Psalm 57. For the choir director said to El Tahith, a Malkim of David, when he fled from Saul in the cave, be gracious to me, O God, be gracious to me, for my soul takes refuge in you, and in your shadow of your wings I will take refuge until destruction passes by. I will cry to God most high, to God who accomplishes all things for me. He will send me from heaven and save me. He reproaches him who tramples upon me, Selah. God will send forth his loving kindness and truth. My soul is among lions. I must lie among those who breathe forth fire. Even the sons of men whose teeth are spears and arrows, there and their tongue a sharp sword. Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let your glory be above all the earth. They have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They dug a pit before me. They themselves have fallen into the midst of it. My heart is steadfast, O oh God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises. Awake, my glory. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will give thanks to you. O oh Lord, among the peoples, I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your loving kindness is great to the heavens and your truth to the clouds. Be exalted above the heavens, O oh God. Let your glory be above all the earth. Let us pray. Father God, thank you for your word. May your word uh, be cherished in our hearts, um, not just for uh for sake of comfort during times of difficulty, we may sanctify us, equip us so that we can also encourage others who are struggling um, and just mindful of those that are um, uh, that are struggling in life, particularly in the realm of being a believer. You know that all of us are uh, are not going to be fawned upon by the world that we live in. We um, know that this is a privilege to be able to represent you in this time. Thank you for your word. May you be with me. Allow me to speak your truth in hopes I can transform our lives. Thank you in your son's name. Amen. Queen Mary was a hardcore Catholic as well as a hardcore Christian murderer. She was, in fact, known by some circles as the Pope of Popes in that she held to Roman Catholicism to such high regards uh, because she wanted to purge Protestantism from England. The only reason why she became queen is because she, because her half brother, King Edward, who was a was almost like the opposite. He was a hardcore Protestant. Uh, he died at the age of fifteen, and when he died, uh, his wife, Lady Jean, uh, uh, Lady Jean was um, was trying to continue Edward's reign. Um, Sorry, Lady Jane Grey. <laughs> Lady Jane Grey was trying to continue Edward's reign, but was only able to reign for a few days before she was dethroned by Queen Mary. I think she was only queen for about 14 or nine to 10 days or something like that, uh, because the queen said, hey, I'm actually, um, I should air, I should be the next person on the throne because I am, you know, 
I'm a half-sister, so there's like some blood lineage there. But Queen Mary hated the Protestants so much that uh, before her coronation, she sent her first Protestant to death. And it's because of her hatred towards Protestants that she is, I think, uh, appropriately labeled Bloody Mary. The first of these martyrs, this is known as the, the Marian martyrs, uh, and, uh, is, is, a, is a person by the name of John Rogers. John Rogers was educated in Cambridge and actually was trained to be a priest at a young age. And he would eventually quit the monastery. Uh, and by God's grace, he met a man that we are familiar with. His name is William Tyndale. Uh, he's famous. Tyndale is known, he's known because he is the guy that translated the Bible into English. And uh, Tyndale was the one who witnessed to John Rogers and is because of that encounter that John Rogers came to saving faith. Um, in a lot of ways, John Rogers was uh, like apprentice of sorts. He was working under the shadows of Tyndale, helping him out with whatever he can. And Tyndale would eventually get uh, captured and he was killed. And a few, this all happened a few months after he got saved. So you can imagine how, how scary it is that after you got saved, your mentor dies a few months later. Uh, Rogers would try to gather all of Tyndale's writings and try to compile it. And he, in a lot of ways, he did finish Tyndale's work. He had to work with other people that translated from the original languages to the English. He eventually did compile and make made the, the English Bible, um, or translate to the English in, the Bible into English. Eventually, uh, uh, Rogers would be burned at the stake. Uh, because of his understanding of the Bible. He was captured by Queen Mary. Roger was tried, and during his defense, the queen asked him questions regarding his views of Roman Catholicism, especially the, the sacraments, to which Roger explained that all of Roman Catholicism, every practice they do, they were all heretical and unbiblical. And after that particular trial, he was in prison for one year. And then on January 29th, 1555, this is another trial, and this is the one where he was sentenced to death. He was charged for blasphemy against the Roman Catholic Church and for denying Jesus in the sacraments. You know, when we do communion, we don't believe that Jesus actually comes down and transforms himself into the bread and we eat Jesus. That's um, not what, the what, what communion is about. And Rogers, as well as all the Protestants, saw that and they said, hey, this is not what the Bible teaches. And they, call them, and they called Protestants the heretics because of that. Rogers then would be sentenced to be burned at the stake. So a few days later, on Sunday, February 4th, 1555, it was a very early morning, and he was brought out of prison. He was barely able to get dressed, and the sheriff there, he was a Roman Catholic as well, and he asked Rogers, hey, I can get you out of here if you recant what you believe. And he said, no, I can't. How can I? All the things I've preached, everything I've written, uh, they will be sealed with Roger's own blood. That's his way of saying that I, I, I'll die for this. To which that sheriff was called him a heretic and said, that, well, in that case, I will, never, I will never pray for you. I will not pray for you. I think the idea is that if you did repent and, or have some sort of remorse, that, the, that they'll pray for him. But Rogers responded in a very Christ-like way instead of, slandering or fighting back he just simply said that well i will pray for you he's taken out of prison and uh, he would he had to walk toward the place where he was to die in fact when he was walking there he was going through the the streets where he would where we used to minister to um 
all the neighborhoods, the, the shops and everything. He just really marched him down through these places as a way to, almost like a public demonstration. This is your pastor. This is your leader. Well, he ministered here and he's going to die. And the execution site, the place where he would be burned, was actually visible to the church. In, yeah, it was an eyesight range of where his church was at. And not only that, his whole congregation came and uh, they watched him. And amongst that crowd was his wife, was pregnant with their 11th child. And there was all 10 of the kids with them. Rogers wasn't allowed to stop and to say goodbye to his family. As he was marching down, he was reciting Psalm 51 loudly so that everyone can hear. And since Psalms are songs, you can say that he essentially was singing to his death. There was a huge crowd that lined all those streets. And at the time, no one was burned at the stake. They didn't really fully understand what that meant. They heard that was happening. They didn't even know what was going to take place. They didn't know if he was going to recant the faith or anything. And when he reached the sites, historians say that the whole church that was there, the church that he uh, pastored, they were all cheering him on. Not because they wanted him to die, um, but they were cheering him on, to, uh, encouraging him to not deny the faith, to hold fast to Jesus, Lord to Jesus, their Lord, and that he will be home soon. They were cheering and rooting for him. It was almost like in Hebrew where it describes the cloud of witnesses, but instead of it being a cloud, it was actually his whole church cheering him on, praying for him. He was burned to death in front of his church and his family. How can we be like those faithful saints of old? that are willing to pay the ultimate price for the glory of God? How can we have the courage in light of the darkest times to endure persecution? How can we have such a resolve that will give us the strength to die for our Lord? Last week, we talked about how we first need to have the dependency on the Lord. And today, we're going to talk about how we need to praise the Lord. How is that? Why, how can praising God and singing to God help us? Well, it helps us because it helps us reinforce biblical truths in our lives, as well as worshiping to the Lord. When we sing, we sing to uh, for uh, for one another, and we also sing as an act of worship to the Lord. And even and even to ourselves, we're reminding ourselves of biblical truths, so that when the time comes when we are alone, we have God's word, and we also have the hymns and songs and and all those things in our minds to carry us on. Again, just a reminder of the context of Psalm 57. David is writing this in retrospect, thinking about when he was in a cave. This was just one of many of the Psalms he's written when he was hiding and running from Saul. He begins by talking about how he's asking God to be gracious to him because he understands that any type of deliverance that he received, it's an act of grace. He doesn't deserve God's grace, but yet he pleads to God's character to show him more grace. He says that he takes refuge in the shadow of God's wings. He, he's like a little bird, and he is under the wings of his mother bird of, or his parents. He's just this protection picture here. He's crying out to the Most High and hoping that uh, God will, will spare him and protect him during this time. He knows that he is surrounded by those who hate him, who's trying to slander them with their words and say things that are um, to just basically kill his character in hopes that maybe discourage him to the point where he just end his own life. And we ended last week by saying in verse five, to be exalted above the heavens. He wanted his life and even death to 
make the world know that God is God, that Yahweh is the one true God? How can we as Christians, modern day Christians, who's in our world just seems like our, our liberties, quote unquote, our safety net, it seems to be slowly drifting away. How can we endure that? How can we find hope? How can we continue in the faith? And how can we die for the Lord? We just talked about last week how we have a deep dependence on him. And now we're going to talk about the second point, which is we praise God for the glory of God. The first point last week is we depend on God for the glory of God. And today we, we praise God for the glory of God. Look at verse six. They have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They dug a pit before me. They themselves have fallen into the midst of it. This is, I think, a very hilarious passage. But that at the same time, it's true that those that usually set uh, traps for, um, for others will eventually end up falling into the trap themselves. And David here is praying that that would happen. Uh, uh, Solomon, his son, will actually uh, quote something similar like this in Proverbs chapter 26, verse 27. He's hoping that the enemies would fail. Uh, they were preparing these steps, uh, these nets for him to step on, um, just to trap him, uh, and that he hopes that they would fail too, so that the, he hopes that they would fall into their own traps. And one view sees this as David's reporting something that has already happened, while another view sees this verse as David anticipating this will happen. I think in this context, it's more of the second view. He knows that this is going to happen. It seems like David being in the cave at the time, looking back at this moment while he was hiding, he trusted that God will deliver him in the future. He essentially trusted that he's going to get out of that cave and be in a, be in a state where he's able to write this song. He trusts God. He has such a resolve for uh, and, and trust in the Lord that he knows that he's going to be fine. Seems that this verse is where his enemies wanted to trap him and failed to succeed. David says that he is bowed down, and often this is a, a word that's used to describe humiliation. We see this in Psalm uh, 145, verse 14, or, or worship in Micah 6 6. David said then he tried to they tried to dig a hole to trap him, only to fall into, uh, into themselves. It's as if they wanted to spring a bigger trap, uh, the hole, but they became overconfident in their victory, and then uh, they failed on the first trap, which is this net. And sometimes our enemies will have these momentary victories only to fail at the end. God is sovereign all over all things, and uh, sometimes uh, things the Lord protects us in ways that we aren't familiar with. Sometimes some losses will eventually turn out as victory for us. The Battle of Bunker Hill. This is during the American Revolutionary War, where the colonial people uh, went against the British. And Bunker Hill is this place in Massachusetts, which is a strategic location to take. And on June 13th, the, uh, the, the colonial army received intelligence that the British were planning to take control of this hill that's around Boston. And um, they thought, well, if they took it, that means that they would have advantage and authority over that nearby harbor. Uh, so 1,200 colonial soldiers situated themselves on this hill, and the British army, after realizing, okay, this is what they're doing, they're okay, now we got to fight for this hill. So they decided to mount for attack. And the British army succeeded, um, and they won. And they, they, well, they won in the sense that the only reason really why they won was the colonial army ran out of ammo. So they said, okay, uh, we're done, guys, let's get out of here. And then they thought, like, okay, um, we won. We, we got this. We got this hill. 
Yet the Battle of Bunker Hill was anything but a true and lasting victory because the British lost a whole bunch of their soldiers and a hundred of them were their like, high up officers. This meant that the British army was depleted of resources and, and art and you know, gear and everything, and they had no management. And although the British troops had far more experience and were outnumbered, the battle itself sapped all of the British morale. In fact, this, motive, this loss of motivation ended up motivating the colonial people because they realized that the only reason why they lost was um, because they just ran out of ammo. They were able to survive. And these guys, these colonial people, they're just like militia people. They're just like farmers. Just, and just picked up, okay, well, let's fight y'all, let's do this. Um, and they won and they emboldened and and them. That even though they lost this one territory, these untrained militias were able to keep up with the trained British army. They lost this battle, but it gave them the ability to win the war. And God and his sovereignty is doing the same thing in our, to our enemies as well. Sometimes the Lord will allow the enemy to have certain victories only to eventually cause them to destroy themselves. God uh, could be, he could give this kind of false assurance to the enemy so that they can have, uh, have an even greater defeat down the line. The Bible's clear that pride comes before the fall and the, and the Lord is in his sovereignty may give the impression to his enemies and to our enemies that they have won only for them to go to great heights to be humbled by the Lord. God will win in the end. So don't be discouraged, brothers and sisters. Know that we are all on God's side and God is going to win. If you don't believe me, read the end of the last book of the Bible. It'll give you assurance that we, 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 we've got this. This is, is all in the bag. Knowing this, this is why David responds the way he does. Look at verse 7. Um, my heart is steadfast. Oh, God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises. My, uh, David has a steadfast trust in the Lord. David is resolved to sing praises to God for because of God's faithful covenant. This word steadfast means that he is fixed and he's secured. And David is secured in his faith, which leads him to, to his actions and affections that are, are both loyal to the Lord. A steadfast spirit is someone that, that would not waver and make decisions that go against God. Remember, he's writing in retrospect. This is what he thought of at the time. He wasn't delivered yet. Yet looking back, he knew that his heart was steadfast on the Lord. Despite all that is going on around him, he is steadfast and confident in the Lord. He says, I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises. He will clearly he sing, he, he will sing clearly as a celebration of victory. It's like the, I think I, I mentioned this once a few weeks ago, but it's kind of like in a sporting event in the beginning of the game. And when, you know, that song, like, na, 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 hey, 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 goodbye. It's like, imagine a team singing that in the beginning of the game. You know, it's like the other team is not going to win. You know, they, yet everyone doesn't know that yet, but there's, you know, those, those like loyalist people that trust that, you know, LeBron or, or, or Curry or whoever their favorite basketball player is going to like dominate the other team. In this case, this is what David is doing. He's singing these praises, knowing that God is going to win. He has such assurance that he's just singing praises. He's singing songs. I don't think he's singing out loud, but he's singing in his own heart. Um, just, just thinking about how good God is and how God is going to deliver him. He has such high confidence in the Lord that singing praises to him is the only natural response because he knows that he's in God's hands and God is going to win. As a result of God's gracious deliverance, he continues to sing praises to God. This is a celebratory victory for David. This first verb here, sing, is 
is, is just using his own voice. And the second uh, phrase, sing praises, is this idea of, of some sort of music that he's going to accompany it with, with his music, with his voice. It's kind of like what we do with a worship set. Again, again, David knows he's a you know, he's, he knows he's a very talented musician and a songwriter. Words was not suffice, so he needs to express his his thankfulness to the Lord. And the only way he can use it is the talent that God has given him. He sings to the Lord. Do you realize that this is why we also sing? We sing not because we think Christ is going to be is is going to deliver, um, and it. Or we sing not because we think Christ is going to deliver and in, 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 in the end be victorious, but we know definitively that's the case. This is not a what if. Like we're singing this hoping that God is going to do something. No, we know definitively that Christ died in the past so that we can be rescued at the moment. We can be given eternity in the future to be with him forever. This is, this situ- there's, a no, there's no way the situation is going to change because Jesus wins. Uh, so we live and we must sing because we know that Jesus has already won. It's true that he's won. Look at what David, how David described. Awake my glory, awake harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. Some of us struggle with waking up early in the morning or David here saying, I'm going to not, when the alarm rings, I'm going to not hit that snooze button. In fact, I'm, 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 I'm going to wake up before the alarm rings. He's going to wake up and he's going to sing to the Lord. David starts by saying, awake my glory, and which seems strange to us because oftentimes when we think of the word glory, it's attributed to the attribute of God. It's, it's about him, uh, and that is true. But when it's described a human, when, it's, when the word glory is, is described to a finite individual, it means all of their being, all that they are. He's calling to himself to, to get up. He's going to use all of his being to praise God. He's going to praise God with all of his might. He's engaging God with his mind, body, and soul. He's awakened. Uh, he's, he's awakening his whole being to sing praises to God. David wants to sing his all. He's going to sing all out for the Lord. He's going to do it with instruments as well. He is going to sing so well. He, in the word he's using here is he's going to awaken the dawn, meaning that he's going to sing, and, the, and, and, and that's why the, the, the sun is going to rise. He's going to sing to the sun. He's going to be the alarm clock, is essentially what he's trying to say. Normally, the dawn would awaken people uh, because of the sunlight, but David's saying that he will sing praises as though his worship to the Lord will awaken the sun. David was obviously a very talented poet and musician. He's known for his musical giftedness. In fact, he was playing music before Saul threw a spear at him. He's using his gifts, the gifts that God has given him, and, and, and giving it back to him by singing praises to him. He's using all that he has and all the gifts that God has given him to give honor and glory to God. And this is just a really side just application for us to think about. I wonder if you think that way when it comes to the talents that God has given you, all the skills that you have, do you use it as a way, as an act of worship and as a way to give glory to him? Do you see that all has that God has given you, whatever uh, ministry that he's given you, whatever talents, resources, all of these things are given to you so that you can use it for God's glory. David begins with a trust in the character of God, which moves him to sing. This turns uh, from singing to, to, to singing praises to him. He goes from crying in the world to praising God of the world to the world. Look at verse 9. I will give thanks to you, O Lord. Among the peoples, I will sing praises to you among the nations. The faithful would normally go into a house of worship in order to sing to the Lord. 
David is going to step going one step further. He's like, I'm not even, I'm not just going to sing inside. I'm going to go out and sing and tell people about my faith through song and music. He wants all the people in the world and all the other nations to know that Yahweh is the true God. After all, the God of Israel is not confined to the nation of Israel, just the Jews. He's a God of all. He is a Lord of Lords. He's a King of Kings. Back then, uh, the Canaanites and even the Egyptians, they all thought that they're the gods are regional. Like, okay, Egypt had their own set of gods, and the Philistines had their set of gods, and, that, and they could only rule in those areas. That's the, how the world thought back then. But David's saying, no, all of those nations, all the people, they are all submissive to only one true God. They can claim that they're a multitude of God, but there's only one God, and he's going to sing about this God so the people can know him. David wants to give thanks publicly, and all followers are called to declare the goodness of God to other nations. First Chronicles 16, verse 8 actually tells us about what Israel is supposed to be. They're supposed to be in one area, and they're supposed to be a light to the world so that when people go by, when they see, they see the blessing that Yahweh has on this one particular group in this one particular land will show them, show the world that. Yahweh is the one true God. First Chronicles 16, verse 8 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deed among the people, sing to him, sing praises to him, speak of all his wonders, glory in his holy name. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. Israel was supposed to do that. They're supposed to stay in one place and then and they're supposed to sing, sing praises to him so that people can know the wonders of the Lord. Psalm 105, verse 1 begins with this. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Speak of all his wonder. Glory in his name. Let the heart of those who seek him, the Lord, be glad. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face continually. Remember his wonder, which he has done. His marvel and the judgment uttered by his mouth. O seed of Abraham, O servants, O sons of Jacob, his chosen. He is Yahweh, our God, his judgments are in all the earth. The Israelites are called and commanded to sing so that other people can know who God is. What he does first actually is, is praising God outwardly. He's singing from his soul. At the darkest hour when all is lost, the word of praise breaks through even the thickest of darkness. In the, diff in the most difficult persecution, he sings. We are all naturally weak, but in those dark moments, we are to be strong in Christ. And this is why we sing before a time of worship. It's not just some sort of interlude that we do before we, we, we hear God's words preach. It's supposed to uh, reinforce truth in our minds. It's all part of the worship, but in a lot of ways, the singing portion is the true introduction to the message. And that's why we sing, is so that we can keep reinforcing and reinforcing, reinforcing truth in our hearts and our mind. We must always speak truth to ourselves uh, in not our own opinions, not our own truth. And then we declare it outwardly. We internalize those biblical truths and we'll tell it to the world because we actually believe in these truths. In our declaration, we actually become light to the world. We become light to the nations. Part of your job as a Christian is to speak of the goodness of God 
to others. I think sometimes we tend to keep some of the blessings of God to ourselves because we don't want to brag. And there is, that is true. Um, you don't want to brag about all the things that you've accomplished in your life. Rather, you need to point the attention to the Lord. In fact, I, I remember this, this conversation I had with an older saint. And he was just, you know, he was just struggling. Not, I mean, he's, he, he lost his job because of COVID. And he just, but he still has, you know, he still trusts the Lord. He's like looking down, thinking like, oh, how am I going to pay for all these things in the future? How am I going to survive? What about my family? And he just said, you know what? God loves them more than I do. God can take care of them better than I. And I trust the Lord. And it's just such an encouragement to hear from other people about just the faithfulness that these saints of the Lord have given them. You know, God gives them, he sustains them. And this, and this saint, this dear saint is, is, is being sustained by God presently. And he's continually rejoicing and telling others of the goodness of God. And that is, should be true for all of us. We should be willing to fellowship. Part of that fellowship is we talk about the goodness of God in our lives. And, and there's so much to be thankful for. Because God is indeed faithful. He always cares and loves his children. Israel is to testify and tell the world of the glory of God, for the, for the glory of God. Uh, the use of in the opening phrase is using his divine name of the Lord. The declaration of God's goodness is declaring his universal sovereignty. And we must be bold in our declaration of who God is. I wonder if some other, I wonder if you ever thought about that. Perhaps the reason why you suffer is that it gives you opportunity to declare God's goodness in light of your suffering. And when people look at you, that they're able to actually look and turn to Christ. Remember our Savior, when he died on the cross, at the very end, when the centurion said this, uh, Matthew 27, verse 54, and the centurion, now the centurion, those who were with him, keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and things that were happening, became very frightful and said, truly, this was the Son of God. If Jesus, in his persecution and in his suffering and death, is able to bring people to the saving knowledge of Christ, then we need to see our persecution that has the same potential. Part of the reason why you may be suffering for the name of the Lord is so that those that are against you can come to saving faith. Do you care more about comfort or do you care more about God being made known in the world? If your suffering will make those that hate you end up loving God. Isn't it worth it? This is the testimony of Paul. Remember, Paul was going around killing all of these Christians. And I, I sense that the reason why Paul speaks of grace so much is because he understands how much grace was shown to him. Like he remembers dragging Christians out of their homes and churches and putting them to death. And the moment he became saved, he, he's like, oh, I, 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 I caused so much pain to the bride of Christ. This is why I think he talks so much in his writings about the grace of God, the kindness of God, is because he experienced it in his own life. You know, sometimes that's what's going to take. Our suffering, our death is going to bring someone to salvation, and they're going to see the goodness of God because of all the sins that they committed against the people of God. It is slaughtering. Paul here, Paul's slaughtering of Christians is what gave him the right view of God. And we need to think in our life as well, that the Lord may allow us to suffer for the exact same reason. Look at verse 10. 
for your loving kindness is great to the heavens and your truth to the clouds. David reiterates this theological motive here of verse three, verses that he will send forth from heaven, save me. He reproaches him who tramples upon me. David fully anticipated that God will send forth his love and truth or faithful covenant love. And so he explains this, uh, that the, this is a theme of why he praises him. God's truth is the only is only found in God's word, which is recorded in scripture. David has faith in God's word, and it's God's word that keeps David in the faith. If you lose one, you'll lose the other. If you lose faith in God's word, you will lose your faith in God. You let go of God's word, and if you, if you let go of God's word, that actually means that you never really um, got a hold of God's word to begin with. If you forsake God and his word, God will forsake you. Do you see your relationship with God in this way? That is a covenant relationship that cannot be separated. If you truly belong to him, then God will keep you until the very end. If you are his, you must see suffering, not as some just mere testing of like, yes, there is that aspect that sometimes it can be a disciplinary thing to make you more refined. Um, but when he, but that's not because of, that's not a punitive kind of thing. It's a sanctifying work. He allows suffering in our lives so that we can be more like him. But he will always keep us, no matter how bad things get. Second Thessalonians 3.3 tells us this, but the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. First John chapter 5, 18 reads, we know that no one will, no one who is born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him and the evil one does not touch him. One more verse, Jude uh, 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. Our God holds us because of the covenant relationship we have with him. You know, every time when I take my kids out to the mall or wherever, I hold on to their hand. And sometimes my daughter thinks, that she's holding on to me as if like I, like I need her to keep her, to keep us safe. Um, she doesn't know that. She doesn't know that her strength does nothing in this situation, but it's only by my strength or Kelly's strength that, that keeps her from running into a car or have a car run over her. It is our, the parent's strength that keeps her from harm. And in a much more greater way, this is our relationship with the Lord. This is what it looks like. Yes, we hold on to him, but in reality, it is God's strength that keeps us. He is really the one that's holding on to us. God will keep you because you belong to him. But we need to go beyond knowing that. But do you actually believe that is true? That, that in your persecution, that God is still holding on to you. Things may be devastating and things may be very difficult, but God holds on to you and he'll give you comfort. Remember that God is going to deliver you out of this life one day. Remember God's covenant to us that, that he, he, he welcomes those that are his, that, that when we have, that we go to him, um, he cares and protects us. David desired to bring others to join him in praising God because God's covenant love for him and for his people. And this is what we should be as well. We should be singing praises and, and, know, and remember of God's goodness and his love towards us. Even in our trials, as great as they seem, God's truth will keep us and will make us endure. Verse 11, this is the same verse as verse 5. Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let your glory be above all the earth. David's repeated this phrase here, and it's intended, you know, kind of like a reminder that we want God to be made known. 
This was an appeal for God to demonstrate his sovereignty by intervening in David's life. He wants God to rescue him so that his power can just be displayed and the whole world will know it. How we react to suffering, um, persecution will actually impact those that persecute us. Whereas the first point is about depending on the Lord and wanting God to act so that God will be, be made known. Our second point here, and this last point, is that we sing uh, so that God will be made known. We sing in those difficult times. We sing when it's not easy to, because those moments are, can be an instrument by which the Lord is be, was making himself known to non-believers. This was so interesting about these last three verses that we see David's true desire to make God known. That's why he. Can, that's why he's writing this. In fact, the fact that this verse is here, and this chapter is here, is exact. It fulfills that almost that prophecy that hey, I want you to be made known. And it's evident here that he is made known through the inspiration of Scripture. The fact that we have this is a testimony to God's faithfulness in making Himself known throughout the world. And we know from First and Second Sam that David does indeed survive this. So we know that again, that God is good that he is going to protect us. Normally people who are suffering by the hands of those who persecute them will not want those that persecute them to have any form of blessing. David here wants to sing praises to all people, including those that want to kill him. Most Jews that are hated by Gentiles usually have a negative disposition to those that, that cause them pain. Right? This is why Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh. Those Ninevites were terrible to the Jews. And they said, okay, I'm not good. I, I want God to enact judgment on them. That's why he was so begrudging when, to, you know, when, he, when, he had, when God told him to go to Nineveh to declare um, salvation. He didn't want to do that because he hated them. But yet David was not that. David's heart, he was, his heart was, was after God's own heart. He wanted God to be made known. God doesn't delight in the, in the destruction of the wicked. He wants everyone to know him and to have this loving covenant relationship with them. He wants to give thanks through song so that everyone will know God. Do you have that kind of desire for others to know him? When you think about what you know of God and what you claim to know about God, is that God that you worship someone that you want others to know about? One of the most unloving thing, I think is the most loving thing that you can do to your non-believer neighbors and friends and even those that are enemies is to not make Jesus known. You may be the only person in their life to have the hope of the gospel, but either out of self-preservation, pride, or even maybe hatred towards the other person, you choose to hide the gospel from them in your conduct and in your words. The most unloving thing that you can do as a Christian is to withhold the gospel to the other person. Romans tells us that how can people be saved unless they go out and we have to use words to go and bring people to saving faith. Our trust belongs in God and God alone. Refuge will not be found in anything that man has made or anything that man can make. We must always trust God's care for us when we feel threatened or when maybe we are actually threatened. God, I trust in God and praise God for the confidence that we have in him. Even if uh, people hate us, in fact, that the antidote to our fear is actually trust in the Lord. It's to sing praises, it's to think about his goodness. Think about all the attributes that we learn from every single week. Every time we sing it, it's a declaration of victory. 
not just of what Christ has done in the gospel, but in the future victory that is revealed in the book of Revelation. When our when we sing, our mind should be both it should be in both directions, both looking back at the past, what God has done in His faithfulness that we see in the Old Testament, and we look forward to how God is going to play out all of history, how everything culminates with the Lord. We need to remember the past, also look forward to the faithfulness of the future, and see God's faithfulness throughout time. No matter how bad things get or will get for the believer, we can always find comfort in this life. We find our refuge in the Lord. Call upon him. We ask him for God's for grace in our lives so that we can endure persecution. God will always care for his people. He delights in protecting and sustaining his people because it shows how good he is. In your time of trouble, always depend on him. And as you cultivate those truths, this will lead you to sing praises to him. And before watching the world, our hope is that they will all know him. John Fox, he's known as he's known as the guy that wrote this book called The Fox's Book of Martyr. And one of his description about John Rogers is that when John Rogers, when he was walking and then eventually being burned, he described John Rogers as if he wasn't even in pain. Um, he, John Rogers actually ended up trying to raise his hand. He was tied, he was like in chains, but he tried to raise his hand and sing to the Lord. And the Catholics at the time thought, by, thought that by killing uh, Christ, this Christian and by killing other Christians, that will make an examples for the Christians to just die out, but actually have the opposite effect. The fight continued all the way to the present day. We have all these uh, Christians all over the world that are dying for the faith and we're enduring different types of trials now in our life for the faith and, the, and this highlights the fact that God that persecution actually doesn't work martyrdom makes believers stronger it emboldens them in fact back then when when Queen Mary after 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 John Rogers was burned that was only with sticks later on they they went like they went a step further not only did they use sticks but they put gunpowder on people to the point where when they like them eventually when it hits the gunpowder their whole like they'll just blow their heads off and that's again to try to show all the people that are watching them that if you are a christian this is what we will do to you and all martyrdom is a triumph for christianity and in this first martyrdom by john rogers they thought that the uh, roman catholics thought that they won but history has shown us that martyr martyrs inspire others because right after he died other Christians, other famous Christians at the time, they heard about his death and they were emboldened to stand for the faith and hold fast to Jesus. All those heroes in the past uh, were emboldened by some of our heroes. Uh, um, some of those heroes that emboldened our heroes were inspired by those before them. And we hope that if our life was taken, that we would embolden the future generation of Christians to hold on to the faith. And this is one way God is made known throughout the world. If our death is what leads people either to repent or reignite of love for the Lord, then we should see this as an honor and a privilege to be a child of God at such a time as this. And even more so, it should be counted a privilege to die for him and, and, and to die for his worthy savior, is, is, to die for our worthy savior who died for unworthy sinner is honor beyond words. It may be for us in a not so distant future that you may even see one of your own pastors get burned alive in front of you, or perhaps your elders, or even one another. One of us, maybe, we may even watch each other get killed for the faith. How did David 
and the saints of old, even to even our present day believers now, hold fast, hold fast to the faith until the very end. How is something like this possible? Well, they depended on the Lord and they instilled biblical truth through song. They did it regularly and they cherished God as their greatest hope and refuge. All Christians should not see losing their life as loss, but see it as gain. They saw it as they saw themselves as thankful. They were thankful that they were worthy to die in the name of Christ. And hopefully that will be said of you and I today. Let's go to Lord in prayer. But we're thankful for your word and we're thankful for even things like church history. You sovereignly preserve both so that we can so we can love you and trust you where we know that things are going to get harder and now some of the little small petty things annoy us and cause us pain but we realize these things are nothing um, because in reality um, there are things that might be worse for us but even then those are considered nothing because the greatest type of pain that we will feel judgment is, is done away with on the cross we're thankful for your son we're thankful for your spirit in, in, in reminding us of your truth. And we're thankful for you for choosing us before the foundations of the world to be here to represent you, to do good works in hopes that people could come to saving faith. And Lord, we do these things not because to earn salvation, but we do it because we love you. It, out of a genuine love, we love others. And we, and we want nothing less than for other people to know and love you, Lord. Give us boldness in our evangelism. Give us a pure life so that people can see you and, and are drawn to you, Lord. Make us bold in a time where it's so easy to be comfortable or cowardly. Be with us this weekend. We thank you for your time, your word. Amen.